0: Welcome to iHeartRadio Communities, a public affairs special focusing
2: on the biggest issues impacting you this
0: week. Here's Ryan Gorman.
2: Thanks for joining us here on iHeartRadio Communities. I'm Ryan Gorman, and we have some great conversations lined up for you. In a moment, I'll talk to the mother of a 12-year-old who took her own life due to bullying, that 12-year-old story is now the focus of a documentary and a massive anti-bullying campaign. Then I'll check in with CNBC contributor Ron Insana to discuss the state of the U.S. economy. We'll talk about the outlook for the rest of 2021, the markets, and what concerns economists and investors have moving forward. First, to get things started, I'm joined by Diane Grossman, co-founder of Mallory's Army, an anti-bullying organization formed after her 12-year-old daughter, Mallory, took her own life. That story is profiled in the new documentary, Mallory, which is available now on demand and on all digital platforms. Diane, thanks so much for spending some time with us, and, and where I'd like to start is by getting to know Mallory, what she was like, and what you remember most about
1: her i always loved this question. Um, you know, I, I describe Mallory as the all-American little girl. Um, she was in a level seven competitive gymnast. Um, she loved cheerleading. Uh, my husband and I have been married for 20 plus years. Um, we're small business owners. Um, we enjoy camping and spending time um, on the creek bank. Um, I tell everybody we're pretty boring. We're kind of vanilla. Um, and so... But Mallory was just a great, she was a very humanitarian, she was a kind spirit, um, she was a sensitive child, um, but super loving, loved animals, loved loved nature, loved the great outdoors, loved rocks and and everything nature, loved climbing trees. Um, And she, unfortunately, um, we started seeing signs of around fourth or fifth grade, but we really started to elevate. There were these four girls that decided that they put a target on Mallory's back and decided that they didn't like her. And it started really with what we call relational bullying, which is, I like you on Tuesday, I don't like you on Wednesday, can you sit with me on Friday, and I'm going to talk about you on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And so it's very behavior, because the victim thinks if I can just do one more thing, then they'll like me. Um, and they want to solve their own problems. Um, and unfortunately, they would pull her hair and make fun of her and call her names and, and threaten to beat her up and it was all of that, and um, unfortunately, towards the end of the sixth grade school year, one of the girls took Mallory's picture without her permission and posted it on Snapchat, mm. um, edited the picture, and then screenshotted the images to Mallory text and text to her. By the time we found out about the pictures and reported it to the school system, we had a three-hour meeting on June 14th, and then several hours later, we came home and uh, Mallory took her own life at the age of 12.
2: Did she have other friends in school, another group to spend time with, or was her focus really on these four girls who had targeted her?
1: I think Mallory had friends. I mean, she was a quiet child, and so she had friends. She was not a social butterfly, so Mm -hmm. she was not mispopulated, and neither did she want to be. Um, I think... In this situation, Mallory had friends, but, you know, you always want what you can't have. And I think that this group was very popular um, among the schools, and she wanted to be in that group. And so I think that there was a little bit of both going on. I think that she had friends that she enjoyed very much so. um, But, again, all of the girls want to be in this group. And so I think she – and I think that they – they teased her to make her think that she could be in the group, and they did things to make her think she could be. I mean, I had the girls at my house once um, just to try to see if maybe if they spent time with Mallory alone, that they would just kind of like leave her alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a little bit, you know, you want what you can't have, and I think she wanted to be in this group, and they just decided that she was an easy target.
2: I'm joined by Diane Grossman, co-founder of Mallory's Army, an anti-bullying organization formed after her 12-year-old daughter Mallory took her own life. And the story is profiled in the new documentary Mallory, which is available now on demand and on all digital platforms. Social media, the internet, you know, when I was in school, middle school, high school, there was bullying, but we didn't have this online component to it. How much did that exacerbate the
1: problem? I think it's because when you're in school, you have two or three people that don't like you. It's contained within that one space. Mm-hmm. I think the cyber component bleeds over into the home and it follows you everywhere. Yeah. It's always with you. The other side to this is, is that when two or three people hate you at school, online, it's those two or three people, but it's also their 900 followers. And when they're 900 followers, That becomes gang-like behavior. And the gang behavior is when the kids like it or heart it or share it or laugh at it, then it becomes nothing is more important to a tween than their peers. And so when the peers don't like you and all of their followers don't like you, then it becomes this overwhelming, I'm not worthy. The other thing, there's a big difference between telling someone to go jump in the lake and telling someone to go kill themselves. When you tell someone to go kill themselves, it becomes, I'm not worthy. I'm no longer valued. And I think that we have to understand that online, children have elevated the level of hate to a a platform that we just can't understand. Um, And it's no longer just kids will be kids. And I think as adults, we have to stop saying that. First of all, it doesn't matter whether it's kids will be kids. Humiliating someone, teasing someone, making fun of someone, laughing at them, doing those things, it's never okay, no matter what the intentions are. So it's not okay to hurt someone but then to do it online, to purposely humiliate them on a grand scale for the world to see, I think that pressure is overwhelming. And I don't think that we understand what it means for our children.
2: I'm curious, what was this whole ordeal like for you as the parent of a 12-year-old who's being bullied? You could see the impact that's having on her. That must have been really, really frustrating and difficult.
1: I think in the very beginning, it was super frustrating because you feel like the simple the solution is so simple you bring the girls into the office you tell them to knock it off leave it on and these are the consequences for your behavior as a parent you think my god why can't you why can't you just fix this problem my child should be able to go to school get an education and come home without having to worry about being humiliated and embarrassed fast forward towards the end you're exhausted you're just depleted and I think that many moms and dads feel that way is that you just want it resolved and that you feel like you've exhausted everything and you also are faced with really tough decisions. Not everybody has the ability to send their kids to private school. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has it. You know, we, we rely on public school for so many things and so to say, well, why didn't you do this? Those are not always options for many people. And then of course you are sad. You just, You know, you're embarrassed you can't fix it for your kids. You know, as moms and and dads, we often, we value our identity as being there for our kids. And then when you're just at a loss and you don't know what to do and how to do it. So I think that there is an entire entire gamut of feelings that go on. And now you just, you live with the grief, you live with the anxiety, you live with the depression, you live with what's left behind. And for me, the film allows people to see this is the this is what happens when you bully someone and they take their own life. Um, but I also want to send a message to parents that bad things happen to good people every single day. It's not about what happens to you in this life. It's what you do moving forward. And if I can get up every day and put my best foot forward and make a difference in the community, then so can everyone else. And I think that that's really hopefully the message behind it is that it's a message, it's a movie about hope and resilience and what you do when something bad happens. No matter what that bad thing is, um, there could be a light at the end of the tunnel and you could be a part of the solution and not the problem.
2: I'm joined by Diane Grossman, co-founder of Mallory's Army, an anti-bullying organization formed after her 12-year-old daughter, Mallory, took her own life. That story is profiled in the new documentary, Mallory, which is available now on demand and on all digital platforms. Before we get to the documentary, tell us about the creation of Mallory's
1: Army. I can't take any credit for that. It was her gymnastics coach. Um, Heather and Mallory's best friend's mom, Katie, so Bianca, and they're featured in the film. Um, they wanted to create a place for people to come together and, you know, send a message of hope and, and what we could do and to talk about bullying. And so the organization really created itself. Uh, days after Mallory passed away, I, I did not want to be the spokesperson for bullying, and I definitely didn't want to share my daughter's suicide with the world, but Mallory died on a Wednesday, and by the next day, there were 5,000 people sharing her story, and it was wow. all over the news, and so um, you had the Today Show calling. You had Megan Kelly calling. You had all of these things, and then I realized that you have an opportunity, Diane. You can walk away from the world, or you can use Mallory's life as an example, and that's exactly what we decided to do is we, we decided to let the world into our life and to let them know that if what happened to Mallory could happen to our family, then it can happen to anyone. And we all need to be mindful. We need to put some verbs in our sentences. We need to put community and humanity back into our lives. Um, and I think not not a better time than right now than we're experiencing COVID. Is it more important for us to really turn together as a community? and recognize what technology is doing to our children.
2: So what would you say the core mission is of Mallory's Army, and what are some of the different things that you're focused on through that organization?
1: So our you know our mission is really about behavior. Behavior is the one thing that you can change today, and it doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to go out and buy anything. Behavior is something that you can wake up every day and say, today I'm going to. And so for us, it's really about that Um We love the school presentations. I love going out and spending time with the kids and sharing Mallory's story and inspiring them to see the type of human that they want to be. I love sharing Mallory's mantra, which is living a bracelet kind of life. You put this little blue band on your arm, and it reminds you to be the good in the world. It's like tying a string around your finger to remember to pick up milk and bread. Not everything has to be captured in our phones. Sometimes living life and experiencing life and being a part of whatever it is, Mallory loves selling bracelets for Camp Good Days, which is a camp for kids with cancer. You know, I love speaking new schools. It doesn't matter what your movement is. Just be a part of something that's greater than you. Um, so the presentation, because of COVID, nothing could have been better timing. People can have access to us and our mission through the film. And so it's really about just reaching the community, reaching people, and letting people know that you can be a part of something so much greater than yourself.
2: All right, now let's get to the documentary, Mallory. Again, it's available now on demand and on all digital platforms. Talk to us about the creation of this documentary, how it came about, and what people can expect when they watch it.
1: Well, first of all, i love to give a plug that it was a group of women that came together to create something that was so important. So Ash Patino, Jenna Bush, um, I really wasn't involved in much of it. I just let them follow me around. And my My wish list was for it not to be a sad film. I wanted it to be an inspiring film. Um, There are hard moments in it when we talk about Mallory's death and what it was like to experience the loss of a child and to find her and we walk you through the 911 call and all of those things. But again, at the end of the day, it's really about an inspiration. And the film for us is something that can live on forever, so year after year after year. When people are tired of hearing these thoughts, they can always go to the film and reference it and build their own bracelet kind of life in memory of whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish in life. And I I just think that the message is you are going to experience hardships. We all go through trauma, whether it's the loss of a child, loss of a parent, loss of, of a job, business, whatever it is. We all go through trauma. It's how we deal with that trauma. And I tell every parent, our children are watching us. If we want our children to be resilient, then we have to live resilient lives.
2: This really feels like a documentary that every student needs to see. Maybe it will be an eye-opening experience for them. Maybe they'll realize that their actions are potentially having a very negative impact on another student. Maybe there's another 12-year-old girl out there who will watch this documentary and realize that there is help, there is support for her to help her get through this difficult time. What has the reaction been like to the documentary, and is that something that you would like to see, schools showing their students Mallory's story?
1: So I've described this film as, and I might be dating myself by saying this, but I refer to it as an ABC ABC after-school special. So you remember when you came home from after-school and there was always this learning movie that was on? Mm -hmm. Well, again, I'm dating, (laughs) but that's what it is. And absolutely, it's a film that I encourage school systems to watch listen, it's hard content, and I know that schools are afraid to open up this conversation. So as an administrator, I would look at it, and I would look at the temperature of my audience, meaning I would look at the grade levels that I'm responsible for. I would watch the film, and I would make a determination whether I'm going to make it an evening event, whether I'm going to make it homework, whether I'm going to show it in the classroom and dissect it so that you can talk bit by bit. I think that every adult has to make that decision but it is absolutely a film that needs to be seen in every school. And I would say 10 and above. Obviously, I, I think content, parents have to make the decision what their children can hear. But I would say 10 and up is a really great age for parents to watch the film, teachers to watch the film. But then stop talking. Yeah. Let the kids talk, right? Let the kids have something to say because children often have solutions for their own problems. We're just too busy talking over them to listen. So I think it's important. Children are the CEOs of their hallways. They are the presidents. They know what's going on. We need to take the time to listen to what they have to say.
2: And then finally, where can people find out more? Perhaps there's a student listening right now who's been going through something similar. To what Mallory went through or a parent dealing with what you dealt with. Where can people find out more information and potentially get some some help and some support?
1: So there's lots of web there's lots of links on the Mallory's Army. So it's Mallory's There's some resource pages there for people to first of all, you have to understand the anti bullying laws in your state. I mm-hmm. think that that's really important. On a blanket across, there's no federal mandate. I think it's important. So if you go to Mallory's Army, there are resources there that you can have the map, click on your state, see what the laws are, if that is. If if you think your child is being bullied or you think something is going on, I refer all parents to go to your pediatrician. Your pediatrician has local great resources to talk to you about what might be going on with your kids. Maybe your child needs to have a baseline neurological exam. Maybe something else is going on. Maybe there are signs of other mental disorders. I think it's really important that we look at what's going on in our home and then work with people that are local that really understand us and what better person to do so than your pediatrician. Um, If you feel like that your child is being bullied, obviously, there's some great resources on our website about being bullied. Follow the laws and then, of course, um, talk to your school system and I tell every parent, no matter what you do, always put it in writing. If you have a conversation with your principal, follow it up with an email. This is what my takeaway from the conversation was. Mm. Don't assume who and the school administration is on the same page.
2: Diane Grossman, co-founder of Mallory's Army, an anti-bullying organization formed after her 12-year-old daughter, Mallory, took her own life. That story profiled in the new documentary, Mallory, which is available now on demand and on all digital platforms. Diane, thank you so much for sharing your story and all the incredible work that you're doing on this uh, really important issue. We, We do appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: All right, and now let's turn to CNBC contributor Ron Insana to talk about the state of the U.S. economy and what to watch for as we continue to recover from the pandemic. Ron, thanks so much for taking a few moments to break all of this down for us. And let's start with the 30,000-foot view of the economy now a couple of months into the new year.
0: Well, we're actually seeing a pretty big and and rapid acceleration in, in the economy. I mean, jobless claims this week, uh, fell below 600,000 for the first time since we saw the spike when the pandemic started. And so that's, that's a track that is, is impressive. Retail sales surged almost 10% last month because of all the stimulus payments that have gone out. And so the consumer is feeling certainly more confident and willing to spend money, whether it's online or now increasingly in person. So we're, we're moving towards what looks to be a year in which the economy may grow north of six percent for the entire year, which would be the strongest since 1983. And we've had, you know, as you well know, Ryan, a, a record infusion of cash: the yeah. three trillion dollars last year, the 900 billion in January, 1.9 trillion in the new administration, and now they're talking about another couple trillion in infrastructure spending over an eight-year period. So, and, and the Fed's keeping rates right where they are. So, once we are, you know, to put it indelicately, set free the boom will be real.
2: Is there a risk of, in a sense, the economy overheating, getting too good too fast? We're putting you know trillions of dollars into it, over $5 trillion in spending throughout the course of the pandemic. Now, potentially another few trillion on infrastructure at the same time that the economy is recovering on its own just because of where we're at in this pandemic. Is that a concern?
0: Um, not, not immediately. If we've added a million jobs a month, for the next eight and a half months, we'd get back to where we were pre-pandemic. So we're going to have to run really hot. Now, And granted, the economy was hot uh, pre-pandemic. We had a record low unemployment rate, you know, wages were going up, and, and the economy was definitely on uh, a much more solid and sustainable path towards growth. Uh, I, I think policymakers, both whether they're, you know, federal uh, officials, the president of Congress, or whether they're at the Federal Reserve, are worried about the longer-term scarring that's taken place over the past year, about how some people have been driven out of the labor force, particularly women, how people of color have disproportionately been affected both in health and in economic terms by the pandemic. That overheating in the classical sense um, may not occur the way people expect it to. Yes, we could see big bumps in inflation because we're coming off a year in which prices actually fell. We also have supply chain disruptions that have pushed up the price of computer chips for automobiles. We have a shortage of houses in the United States. We're 4 million homes short of demand in the U.S. Wow. Labor's, uh, lumber is at an all-time high. Copper is rallying. And, and some people are ca- calling copper the new crude oil because it's used in so much technology uh, goods that you know, we're looking at different indicators of growth. And, yeah, we're seeing a very strong domestic economy. Europe lags. China's pretty strong. Latin America is not so great. So it's not going to be a uniform global recovery that's synchronized. The U.S. may well lead. And and in some ways, that's good news, particularly if we lead the rest of the world out of recession. We may have to run, (laughs) to to put it in um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer terms, at full power. Uh, the way Santa asked the Rudolph, <laughs> I'm on that very foggy Christmas Eve, you
2: know. I'm joined by CNBC contributor Ron Insana talking about the state of the economy. You mentioned one word that I know people are hearing a lot of these days, inflation. Can you explain yes. how that works and what the potential risk is at the moment?
0: Well, you know, it's a funny term in the sense that, you know, for those of us who are old enough, and, and you know, I just turned 60 recently, so I lived through the 70s and early 80s inflation. You know, my first car loan was 20.5% for a 1979 four-door tan Chevy Nova. Not the hottest car you could buy for $2,000 at 20.5%, but that's where we were. And there were a combination of things that occurred in the 70s and early 80s that led to what we ultimately called stagflation, which was high interest rates, double digits, double-digit unemployment, and double-digit inflation. And if you go back to the 70s, we took the dollar off the gold standard. We had two oil shocks. Unions were a much bigger part of the labor force where they had automatic cost-of-living adjustments in their compensation. So every time inflation ticked up, up, wages would go up with it. We had economic policy mistakes, wage and price controls. We had the Federal Reserve do things at the time that were counterproductive. So until Paul Volcker raised interest rates so high, Drove us into a recession to break the back of inflation. That was a really structural set of issues. Today, the economy is not the same. And yes, we're seeing increases in prices of goods and some services. The Federal Reserve kind of used this, and and it's an indelicate um, way to put it. That inflation is going to look like a piglet going through a python. That we're going to see this <laughs> bulge in inflation because last year we were so depressed and prices fell so much. Remember airline traffic. Last April was down 97%. Now we're still 50% of capacity um, and prices are going up, but they think it's going to be like a one-time readjustment Mm. that doesn't last well into the future. That's an open question because we are stimulating the economy like crazy. But for now, that's the prevailing
2: point of view. Let me ask you about the state of our debt and the deficits that we're running. Trillions of dollars have been added to both recently, of course, in large part due to the pandemic, but they were already high going into this public health and economic crisis. Is that sustainable? And what are some of the potential short-term and long-term effects of running high deficits and adding so much money to the national debt?
0: So it becomes a question of um, relative risk, right? I mean, the U.S. is driving up its deficits on an annual basis. The first half of fiscal 21, um, and, and remember that the fiscal year for the government starts on October 1st. So the first six months of fiscal 21, we ran a $1.7 trillion deficit. So running, we're running at a $3.4 trillion annual rate for this fiscal year. So does the rest of the world. Right and debt to GDP were are across the one hundred percent threshold, but so is the rest of the world. So, with respect to debt and deficits, we're the nicest house in a bad neighborhood right now. You know, Japan is well over one hundred and fifty, almost two hundred percent debt to GDP. Same in Italy, Spain, and Portugal. China has an enormous debt to GDP ratio. Um, slightly different dynamics in their economy and in their finances but the real question is you know sustainability do do we start at some point to grow fast enough that tax revenues go up and begin to reduce annual deficits and then do we get to a point where we stabilize let's say the deficit at 3% of gdp as opposed to 10 or 8% and, and do we start to stabilize the debt those are key questions and if there is a problem which problem is the biggest in the world is it the united states is it Venezuela? Is it Italy? Is it Spain, Portugal, China, Japan? We don't know. And so for now, we're okay. And given that interest rates are low, the capacity to service this debt is actually manageable. If rates were to triple, we'd have a big problem because Mm -hmm. then interest on the national debt would be the largest component of federal spending.
2: I'm joined right now by CNBC contributor Ron Insana to talk about the state of the U.S. economy. Let's get to the stock markets. Obviously, they took a a big dip at the start of the pandemic, but they've more than recovered. We're seeing record after record after record. Is that a bubble in the making? Is that sustainable? What are your thoughts on what we've seen from the markets over the course of the past year plus?
0: Right. Well, and, 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 and possibly because of, in, in one sense, that you know, the Federal Reserve took interest rates to zero, did more at the beginning of the pandemic than it did during the entire global financial crisis back in 2008 and 2009. And then, as you mentioned, you know, we're spending maybe close to $7 trillion, which is almost 30% of GDP, uh, to get out of this thing. So there is so much cash, so much liquidity in the system that it's hard to see an environment where the market takes a meaningful dive. Not to say it can't have a 5, 10, 15, 20% correction any time along the way, but typically bear markets and big declines are started when the Federal Reserve begins to raise interest rates and does so for a sustained period of time. And Jay Powell this week again told us that he has no plans on doing that this year. And it's conditioned on the economy getting almost completely back to normal before they even think about changing their stance. So is, if that's the case, and again, bear markets are started by two things, uh, rising interest rates on a sustained basis or the, um, an impending war. And neither of those, at least for the moment, appears to be on the horizon. Now we could have a massive trade war with China, which would be problematic, or we could have more problems with Russia, Iran. North Korea, something could happen along the way that would shake the stock market's tree. But there's just so much liquidity sloshing around that for the foreseeable future, it's hard to make a case that the stock market's not going to be propped
2: up by that. Final item I want to touch on real quick, housing. You mentioned the demand for homes is sky high. What does that mean for prices? And are there any big concerns about that part of our economy?
0: Well, again, you know, mortgage rates remain incredibly low by historic standards. Um, demand for suburban housing has exploded since the pandemic, in part because people wanted to get away from very densely populated cities, and also in part because cities like New York, San Francisco, Chicago, LA, Miami are extremely expensive. So we've seen this migration into the suburbs, but there's also a shortage of existing homes and new homes. So lumber now is selling at about $1,200 per 1,000 board feet. That adds over $25,000 to the cost of a home. So we are seeing home prices go up. They're over $300,000 median price in the United States. So people are looking for homes. The supply is way, way too constrained. So it's pushing up prices. So we may see a pause at some point just because affordability is is, is becoming um, more difficult to attain. And then you've also got a literal physical shortage of housing. So, yeah, prices are going to go up. The demand is high. Now, we are seeing some interesting things in places like New York City where young people are taking advantage of rent deals that have emerged since the pandemic and making their way back as older people are moving out. So it's really going to be a location-by-location, city-by-city type of... Uh, Uh, set of forces that that drive the supply and demand belt but clearly we need to replenish the housing stock because it is in very very short supply right now
2: cnbc contributor ron insana with the latest on the state of the economy now a couple of months into 2021 ron always appreciate the time and insight thanks so much for joining us
0: My pleasure. Thanks
2: for having me. All right. And that's going to do it for this edition of iHeartRadio Communities. We're going to be back same time, same place next weekend. Stay safe. 18- plus.